Aloha, everyone. This is Larry Camp, and welcome to the Nobody Knows Your Story podcast, which just happens to come with a side of Hawaiiana. Nobody Knows Your Story is a podcast which I believe will impact each listener in a positive way. As you listen to the experiences that have transformed, shaped, and guided each guest, perhaps you'll better understand your own personal journey. Some will surprise, some will make you question, and some will inspire, but all will leave you in a better place for listening in. As for the Hawaiiana, Well, that's just a big part of my life story. So I invite you to check in each week and listen to the life experiences of people just like you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Nobody Knows Your Story. Today, I am visiting with Bruce King. And Bruce and I play softball together here in St. George. And uh, sometimes before we actually play games, we'll stand around in the uh, outfield and just talk and visit. And so I know a little bit about Bruce, but... I know one thing for sure. By the end of this uh, podcast, I'm going to know a lot more. <laughs> so welcome, True. Bruce. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. So I, I know that usually when I, I start with people, I we talk about uh, kind of where you grew up, your upbringing, you know, your things that were of interest to you at that time in your life, the influence of your, uh, you know, your family and friends and things like that. So why don't you tell us where you grew up and you know what your interests were at that time? Okay, uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and uh, my interest pretty much was baseball, baseball <laughs> and more baseball. Yeah. And reason I got into that, uh, one of my favorite players played on the Oakland A's, Ken Holtzman. Probably don't know who he is, but anyway, he was a left-handed pitcher. Played for the Chicago Cubs too. Yes, he did. Very good. Yeah. Yep. And. I know my baseball. Yeah, good. But his uh, main, where he got his name was with the the A's back in the 72, 73, 74 when they won the World Series. Those straight three years. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I latched on to him because he was left-handed and I'm left-handed. And he was a pitcher and I wanted to be a baseball player. That's all I did. And uh, high school, I put, well, going back to the younger years, I played Little League Baseball. Uh, Pony League, Babe Ruth League. I don't know if they even have those anymore. Yeah, yeah. they did in San Diego. They did, yeah. yeah. I, I played them too, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they have a Colt League, all mm-hmm. that. Anyway, I did right right through the rankings. And uh, after school, I'd play baseball with my buddies. If they didn't play, I'd go play by myself. I'd pitch against the fence at the elementary school. It was about two blocks from my house where I grew up. And I'd just pitch for a couple hours pitch pitch and pitch pitch the ball go get it pitch again mm-hmm. and this lead into this why this story led into is uh um as far as uh growing up my dad he was construct he owned a construction company he worked for his dad and then he took it over and he built every house on our block which was uh six houses and just had a 
pretty good childhood. We knew all our neighbors. Everybody knew each other. Uh, back in the day, you could leave your doors open and we could just walk right in. Um, and uh, I have a brother and a sister. My brother was a bully. <laughs> and he's he was five, four years older than me. My yeah. sister was nine years older than me, so I really didn't know her that well. Because she was, you know, when she was 18, I was still pretty much a baby, so... Yeah. We weren't that close, and but my brother was a bully, and uh, that's where I got my learn to run fast, which comes into play when I went to high school baseball. Yeah, and uh, he was the type of guy that uh, one day he was, uh, for example, him and his best friend lived next door too, and the other guy down the street. Like I said, we we're all friends. Anyway, there was a ant hole next to us. Uh, and he goes, he put, actually put red ants down my neighbor's pants. And he goes, you're next. And that's where I learned to run because I was always running from him. That's just one example. There's more, of course. But, oh, yeah. And believe it or not, we're closest, closest can be now. I mean, we talk to each other once a week and we're very close. And um, my mom, she never worked. She played cards, pan. I don't know if they even play that anymore back then. But uh, basically, pretty much childhood was, uh, we, I'd go down to my friend's house, we'd ride our bikes, uh, play stupid games that they don't play now, capture the flag, hide and seek. Kick the can. Kick the can, uh, touch football in the street. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they, like I said, I don't think they do that stuff anymore because of the videos and internet stuff, right. which we didn't have. Yeah, we did a lot more outdoor stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, street football, like I said, and stuff. So anyway... So basically, it was just pretty good childhood. I mean, did you guys have any kind of a religious affiliation or anything? I was Jewish. Okay, I was Jewish, and that's another reason Ken Holtzman I hooked on to. He was left-handed and a Jewish pitcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't real religious and stuff, but I did. Uh, I did my confirmation and had my uh, bar mitzvah. You know, did the routine then. And that's when you're twelve. Uh, bar mitzvah is about. 12 or 13, I'm not sure. Yeah. And then after that, you go to confirmation, which is another step. And I did that, and that was it. I was done. I, I just wasn't my thing. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I'd go to the high holidays, and we celebrate them and stuff. And uh, My uncle, he was very religious, so any holidays, Jewish holidays, we'd go to his house and, you know, practice it and read and whatever you had to do. We did that. He was very religious. And, uh, so we had to do that. And every Sunday we'd go to my, we just had family dinners every Sunday at my aunt's house. She lived like down the street. So we did that every Sunday and stuff. So like I said, pretty, pretty much normal childhood and a fun, fun childhood. I would say I enjoyed it. Almost sounds like the, uh, leave it to beaver. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like I said, dad's a regular guy and worked hard and stuff. And, um, and then when I went into high school, it was baseball again. I ran cross country in the winter just to keep in shape for baseball. And then uh, tried out for the baseball team. And uh, I was a release pitcher. And in that year, they started the pinch runners. I don't know if anybody remembers that. They did that in baseball too. Major League Baseball, they'd have pinch runners. Uh, like ex-high school. I mean, ex uh track stars 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, the A's. Exactly. Yeah, the A's yeah. got the guy from the Olympics. Uh, um, just trying to think of his name. I can't remember. He just died, in fact. Hmm. I think he just died about three weeks ago. I don't remember his name. So anyway, I was a relief pitcher and a pinch runner because I was always a fast runner. And we had a great team, and I'll never forget this one. Uh, we were playing North, which was our rival. Whoever won this game was going to go to state. And it was a close game, battling. I was like one-to-one, whatever. I was on second base. I think there was two outs. Guy bun it. And I hesitated for some reason. I don't know why he got the bunt down. Obviously, I got thrown out at third, and we lost the game, and we never went to state. <laughs> so I never forgot that one. But It's know. interesting, isn't it? Those, yeah. I mean, my wife is blown away by how I can recall a game from a couple seasons ago in a tournament and, and tell her what I did. And it's like you said, yeah, we, we remember the good times. You know, oh, yeah. I, I homered or whatever. But, man, I, I remember the times I, I let a ball go between my legs or – or not even always me. I remember in a in a championship game when I was about 17 in Salt Lake City, we were playing at Ken Price Park, which people know where that is. It's in Murray. And um, our catcher, who went on to play Division One baseball, he overthrew third base on a guy going from second to third. The guy came in and scored. Game over. Yeah. And that's how we lost our game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, I, but I remember that. I mean, I still remember yeah. it. Yeah. I remember that. It was. Uh, so North High went on. Did they end up winning? Uh, no, I don't think they won state. Oh, I okay. think it went to state. And after the game, I don't even recall if no one talked to me or if they were, okay, it's okay, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember. I just, you know, I don't remember what kind of reaction the team had. But but I do remember that play. But And it also shows that, you know, even now at our age, you know, sometimes you have players on your team that if somebody makes a mistake, they'll yell at them. Yeah. They'll say something negative to them. And it's like, I've always said, hey, the person who made the mistake already feels terrible. Exactly. It does no good. All you're doing is making them feel worse. Exactly. Just you know, leave like, them alone. no matter what anybody said to you, you already felt terrible right. for getting thrown out. Right. You just leave them alone and time takes, time cures everything. But I still remember it, but that's yeah, yeah. just the way it happens. So do you have a, a, a pleasant memory from those high school days? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. we uh, um, Believe it or not, I had a high school sweetheart all through the years. So that was pleasant. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoyed high school. You know, it was just pretty much normal. Um, and then after that, I went to uh, Mesa Junior College, which is Grand, in Grand Junction. I don't think it's junior college anymore. But I went there basically to try to be a walk-on to play baseball because it was one of the, should I say, one of the better schools in Colorado for baseball. Mm-hmm. So I went on there, tried to, I didn't get a scholarship. So I tried to go on as a walk-on. And I did pretty well. The coach seemed to like me and stuff. And uh, he, uh, he called my other high school coach uh, to get a recommendation, this and that, and he, this and that. He goes, well, but in the end, he said, he goes, I can't use you right now, but uh, I would have you more than happy to be a pitching, batting practice pitching pitcher. And because uh, I had a rag arm, I could pitch and I threw strikes. I had no problem doing that. Explain to people what a rag arm is. I uh, could throw all day yep. without, without getting yep. sore or nothing. Exactly. You know, just throw and throw and throw. So he offered that position to me, and uh, I said no. I was disappointed. 
because I didn't make the team and that. And I regret that move now, too, because actually I think I could have probably, you know, major league guys use that and minor league guys use pitching, batting practice pitching pitchers. Mm-hmm. I bet I could have done that, actually. But at that time, I was young, and so I was frustrated. I said, no. So I played a little intramural sports, this and that. And actually, my high school sweetheart followed me to college. And we just kind of didn't get along. And, I, you know, I kind of wanted to experience other stuff. I was at that age. Mm-hmm. So basically broke up, and I went to college for maybe a year and a half. So then I came back to Denver. And... Uh, my dad have my dad was a smart person. He uh, invested in some properties and built apartments and townhouses and stuff like that. He was pretty pretty smart with that. So I managed one of his apartments. I did that, um, and then my brother's best friend opened a restaurant called Spuds, uh, which was baked potato eatery, mm-hmm. and we had like fifteen varieties of baked potatoes and stuff. So I worked for him. And uh, he eventually passed away, so my dad bought it out, and he let me run it. I was there pretty much most of the time running that. And we tried for a liquor license a couple times. We got turned down. Church was against it, and there was kind of a school a little ways. Anyway, we got turned down, and it's funny. Now the street, it's called, uh, it's in Denver, it's called Pearl Street. There's sushi bars and bars. Everybody's got a liquor license now. Yeah. But at that time, we couldn't get one. So, anyway, I was uh, <clears throat> browsing the paper there called the Rocky Mountain News, and I saw an ad for an umpire. I said, I'll give him a call. Call the guy. Talk to him. He goes, okay. Like, can you start this? And I told him. Because the restaurant wasn't open all the time. We uh, We had weird hours. We were like, 10 to 3, and then we close from 3 to, like, 6, and then reopened from 6 to 10 because there was no business in the afternoon for that, for what we had. And I was off the weekends, too. So, anyway, I answered that, so I started umpiring. I started doing Little League, and I kind of liked it. Uh, and then I worked my way up, and I started doing high school. And then uh, he goes, you want to do a semi-pro game? I go, Sure. So I did one. First thing the catcher says to me, he turns back, he goes, don't worry about a thing. I won't miss the ball. And guess what? He didn't miss the ball. And then the first pitch it came, don't forget, it came from high school pitchers. Mm -hmm. First pitch it came from that pitcher, I closed my eyes and I called a strike. I don't know if it was a ball or a strike. No one argued. No one said nothing. That thing was coming in so fast. I I got scared. (laughs) It was, you know, it's a shock from the little league going to high school. And then after that, I was fine. I don't know. I just, I was fine. I called a good game and I enjoyed it. So I was going to go to umpire school in Florida. Uh, one of the major umpires, uh, MLB guys had a school, Harry Weintz. Windlestat. Thank yep. you. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go to that. I put in my deposit, hundred bucks. And I was ready to go to Florida, save some money up. Because the restaurant, I could tell, was going different direction because we didn't get our liquor license and no one was interested. And I think my dad owned the building and he was ready to sell it or rent it out to another restaurant that wanted to come in. So I could see the writing on the wall. So I applied for that and then 
funny enough, I was reading the paper again, and I saw a one ad for uh, dealers at a dealer school in Vegas. So I said, all right, well, this is before I was going to Florida. I go, all right, maybe I was thinking about it. I thought about reality. <clears throat> and reality set in, so I did the dealers thing. And you had to send in a picture, take a test, a math test, this and that. Nowadays, you don't have to do that. It was all different back then. Send in a picture. <laughs> yeah, you had to send a picture. You know, they want to see what you look like. Yeah. Take a math test. It's None of that happens now. So I did, and I got accepted. And I was all, you know, like all excited, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so I turned down the umpire school. And decided to head to Vegas, which I regret because I wish, because if I knew what I knew now from dealing, you could do that anytime. I would have, I wish I would have went to the umpire school and tried it, see if I made it or not. You yeah. know, if I didn't find, if I did, okay. Yeah, because that's great. one of those things that you, you kind of had a, a timeline to do that. Right. It's difficult to do it, to be an umpire, at least at a high <laughs> level, uh, you know, once you get into your 50s and 60s and things like that. Exactly. So, so I just thought about reality and this and that. So uh, uh, me, and, me and my brother, he drove me out to Vegas, rented an apartment, and I started dealer school. And I signed up for craps, blackjack, and poker. And I only learned craps. And uh, six weeks, they threw me, they, they give you a job placement, and I started up in uh, what was it? Henderson, Henderson, Nevada, which had about three small casinos. So I went up there and, uh, they say it takes about four to five years to be a good crap dealer. And they were right. But when I went up to Henderson, I got lucky. I had a guy, uh, kind of liked me and latched onto me and he was an experienced dealer. He was, you know, going towards getting out of the business that he was up there in age and he taught me a lot and I was there about three months and then I went downtown to Las Vegas club which is not even there anymore and that's where you learn how to deal it's not like back then it's different now the clientele is a lot different when I dealt back in the in downtown area get old timers drunks People that would try to trick you because they knew how to play the game and they knew you were still breaking in, mm -hmm. take pot shots at you, and you know this and that. So, and even the bosses were the same way. I had bosses that uh, they like you. It's like any business, you know. Someone likes you, they like you. If not, you'll know when they don't like you. And I had a boss that he didn't like me because he thought I was a canary, which means. When I was on the, when you took the stick and called the dice numbers, you'd call a hand every time, you know, not many sevens out where the, that's seven out is where you start over the game. So anyway, he thought I'd, they have all kinds of work, uh, terms for, uh, stick men. If you, singers, opera singers, canaries, guys are just called numbers after numbers and not calling seven outs. Oh, this and that. So anyway, he didn't like me, and he was a pit manager. But the general manager liked me. So he didn't say too much. But anyway, that was a good learning experience there. I was going to say, take just about 30 seconds and explain craps. 
Okay. Because um, I guarantee you, somebody on here isn't going to know what you're talking about. Basic rules, there's a pass line, and you put the minimum bet down. And, uh, and this is the game of the casino. If you're walking by, it's the big table where people right. are throwing dice. And there's uh, usually stick man, two dealers, and then a box man in the middle. And uh, you put your bet down on the pass line. It'll say pass line. And the first roll... You win on 7 or 11. You got to roll 7 or 11, and you get even money. If you roll a 2, 3, or 12 on the first roll, you lose your bet. Then you put down another bet, and it just circulates, starts over again. 7, 11, you win. 2, 3, 12, you lose. If you roll a number in between then, which would be uh, 2, 4, 6, 8, and uh, I forgot the game already. They're retired eight years. <laughs> <laughs> so if you roll one of those numbers, what is it? Uh, four, ten, six, eight, and five and nine. That's your that's your point. That's your number. So to win that pass line bet, you have to repeat that number again before a seven. Right. So if the seven comes up, then you lose. Everybody, lo- yeah, yep. you lose, and, and everybody you, else. Right, and then you just start over again. Yep. And then there's uh. It gets that's the basic, and then there's called odds, place bets, come bets, and that gets basically it's just a game of another game as, with the same rules what I just told you on that. And uh, so most of the time, the people that are playing craps, most of them know what they're doing. Yeah, most uh, most of them do. There's some that don't. You, you know, you got to explain it to them. Would you find that as you went from one casino, like you started in Henderson, then you went downtown, Las Vegas Club, then you went from there? Uh, where did I go? Circus Circus. I guess what I'm saying is as you would change these casinos, would you find that the players seem to be a little bit know what, more what they're doing as you would go into a different casino, or would you find that it's the same everywhere? Uh a good question it depends on the players you know like i said some down downtown some of those players they were pretty sharp you know they were knowledgeable they weren't big players or betters i mean i deal uh back then i deal uh dollar games and uh so it just depends on the person you know and then when i dealt the mirage you get a lot of tourists so you'd have to teach them the game yeah i just know that if i sat down at a blackjack table and i saw somebody like Splitting face cards, I'd be like, see ya. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah, you never do that. But uh, but that was a good experience. And I was there about, I don't know, well, that's quite a while, was it? Nine months or so? Yeah, so that was from Las Vegas Club to, see, uh, to Circus Circus. Yeah, then I went to Circus Circus. <clears throat> and that was a whole new ball game because back then it was still table to table, meaning we had a four-man crew. There was, like I said, there was always a stick man two base guys and then one guy on break you work 20 minutes on the stick go to the one base work 20 minutes go to the other base for 20 minutes and then take a 20 minute break so we had a four-man crew mm-hmm. so table table meant it was end of the day whatever tips we made we split between just us four no one else 21 was all together they did their own thing but it was just us four so There'd be days we'd make nothing. There'd be days, you know, we'd make a couple hundred dollars each. So it just depends on time of year. 
you know, of course, holidays are busier and stuff and make more money. But Circus Circus, on average, I probably make $80 a day. That was, uh, it was an okay job there. It was, it was mostly family, entertainment kind of, mm-hmm. uh, not big players, little, little less lower players, you know. It was mostly a fun place, Circus Circus was. But the guy that worked there, the box man, he was dating my cousin, Lottie. She worked, uh, at, uh, she did makeup at one of those uh, Macy's or something like that. And so I didn't know that till I got there. And we just started talking and, you know, you just talk. And he goes, oh, okay. So, you know, I'm dating your cousin. I go, okay, well, that's good. So he was keeping an eye on me and stuff. And he, after about six months, he goes, get out of here. I go, what do you mean get out of here? He goes, you're ready to go to the Flamingo. He goes, okay. Well, how do I? He goes, just go there and put an application and just go there. Mm-hmm. That's where he came from. He was an older person on his way out too and had connections. It's like any other job. It's who you know sometimes. Was this in the 90s? Uh, let's see. Yeah. I'm trying to think when I moved out to uh, Vegas. Um, I was there in the eighties. I was there like 83 to 87. Yeah. Well, I moved to Vegas in 84. Okay. I was 27 and I lived, I lived there for over 34 years. Now let me ask you this. We haven't talked about this. Did you play city softball while you were there? You know what? <clears throat> That's where the other story comes in, how I got back in the softball. I didn't. Okay. Because I was I, playing, we played out on Eastern, out at Sunset <clears throat> Park. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, no, I was uh, involved in this my career trying to be the best I can as a craft dealer. Mm-hmm. Because it, it took some time and training to do it. And I I take chips home at night and practice by cutting the chips. I mm-hmm. can get quick and shortcuts and move. So I was... I lost complete interest in uh, softball and baseball because, like I said, I got mad from the uh, yeah the college thing, and, and I just lost interest. And, and I, focused on uh, yeah. the dealing. And that's why I tried the umpiring, a different aspect. And when I came to Vegas, I did a little umpiring for Little League, and you know, I just didn't have enough time because I, I was going to school, and I was just so – I was working on actually a career. Mm-hmm. This was my career.
Flamingo, and I auditioned. What an audition. Guy threw me on a table, fairly high roller, loud mouth, drunk. Put me on there for about 20 minutes. I was sweating. I was sweating. This guy was pulling everything on me. He knew how to play, but he was drunk and loud and abusive. So I took, did, took my medicine, did the 20 minutes, got off the game, the guy says, guy that auditioned me, he goes, goes, you did pretty good. He goes, guess what? I go, what? You can deal that. You can deal anything. So you start on graveyard. Graveyard meaning 3 o'clock in the morning to 12. So I started there, and it was still table to table back then as far as the with the four dealers. So you're splitting tips with the four guys. The four guys. Yep. And... uh it was a better job. Uh, there was times we could make 900 plus. But then there was days, you know, we only make 60 $60, whatever. But it was a fun job, and I learned a lot then. And uh, I was working with an old-timer on the crew. Uh, his name was Ralph. And, you know, basically we had the same crews because Graveyard was a smaller shift, and we always worked with the same guys. And... This guy wouldn't talk to me. And even on a dead game, he wouldn't talk to me. And, you know, I didn't say nothing or do anything wrong. And I just kind of wonder why this guy talked to me. So, uh, anyway, you learn how to hustle bets, meaning asking players to put a bet down for you. And you got to do it quietly because the pit manager doesn't want to hear you because he's working for the casino, you know. And sometimes the box man, whoever it was, you had to watch it. Or when he had his head turned, you got to pick your spots. If it was a good box man, fine. Some of them thought they owned the place. And it was their money. So you had to watch it. So anyway, I just, you know, I started learning, getting comfortable dealing and stuff. So I asked the guy for a bet. I said, sir, why don't you put down $5 for me? And this Ralph guy heard me. After that, he started talking to me. I go, why didn't you ever talk to me before? He goes, because you didn't ask for a bet. And then after that, we were, we were good friends, and he talked to me all the time. He's just one of those old-timers, I guess. I don't know. But I learned how to hustle then, and it was actually fun. It was yeah. fun asking for a bet. It felt like you accomplished something, you know. You got a bet with odds. and So it was, that was fun. I worked there for uh, – I worked for – Flamingo, geez, I don't know, three years maybe, three, four years. And then uh, Steve Wynn, I don't know if everybody knows Steve Wynn or not, but he's a big mogul casino owner in Vegas back then. He owned the uh, Golden Nugget, and then he opened the Mirage in 89, and that was the first major strip joint to open for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then that started a trend after that, obviously, Treasure Island, Bellagio. Bellagio, all yeah. those places. It wins. 
Yeah. He's got his own right. his own name now. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I used to always stay at Mandalay Bay. Yeah, that started in Mandalay Bay. Yeah. And that's he started he revived the strip, basically, this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh so anyway, everybody wanted to go there. That was the place. And again, uh there was a blackjack dealer at the Flamingo. He happened to like me. <clears throat> And I told him what I was going to do. He goes, okay, this and that. He goes, put an application in. So I put it in. I got in. He must have known somebody. Uh, I like to think some of it was I knew how to deal and my ability, too. But who knows? I wouldn't have ever got in without him. So anyway, that opened. And then in between that, before it opened, when I was at the Flamingo, I also taught crafts at the dealer school. I, so I basically, I'd work 3 to 11 in the three in the morning to 11 and then i'd go teach from like 12 to 5 and then go to sleep i did that for about a year i had to quit I was, it was just too much mm-hmm. so i did teach crafts for about a year and was it was the money wasn't very good for teaching but i enjoyed the game and i enjoyed teaching people so i did that for for a year also and then uh raj opened 89 so i went there and then Steve, that was a whole new ball game. Steve Wynn cut out the table to table. It was uh, everybody pulled the tips together. Yeah. So everybody in your section. Every every game, baccarat, twenty one, crap, whatever, roulette, and uh, so he, he basically stopped all that. And I think all the casinos followed his suit. I think Caesars was still table to table back, maybe a year, two years after Wynn came in, but. Now it's all uniform as far as that. There's no more table to table. So I caught the tail end of that, doing the table table, and it was a good experience, and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. So I worked at the Mirage from 89. I worked there for 23 years. Wow. Now, now, did you learn to uh, deal blackjack then at the Mirage? Yeah. We had a, um, a pit. Uh, pit manager came in, which is the the big boss. Not the pit manager, a uh, shift manager. Excuse me, shift manager. He's the boss of that shift. They had a shift manager for each shift, for day shift, uh, swing, and graveyard. And this guy was our shift manager for day shift, and he overseed everything. He was the boss. Whatever he said, you did. He he was the boss over the dealers, the pit managers floorman so anyway he this guy came in um and he told every crap dealer learned uh 21 he wanted them to of course we him and ha because we didn't want to do 21 so we basically did on the game training just threw us in a 21 game and uh 21 dealer be over our shoulder watching us and that's how we learned. But we only dealt like uh, once a week or so. But everybody had to do it. And then he finally got fired or quit or something. And then we went back to normal. So that's just how the business is. Uh, Did you find that you were, you preferred dealing craps then? That's where you were comfortable? Yeah, because I knew the game. And I knew very comfortable there. 21 is a little uncomfortable. And uh 21's a strange game. It's... uh Craps, what should I say? 21 is more of a personal game. You got to be more personable with the person. 
and they want you to laugh and joke and this and, and we're crap you know you're kind of moving you don't have time to do that all the time mm-hmm. so that's the only difference and sometimes in 21 i'd uh i'd get you know 18 and or whatever 16 and get a 21 players would blame you you know oh yeah it's like okay well why'd you do that you know, I don't know. I, the cards came up now. You know, you can't say smart remarks, but you're thinking like, why are you saying that? You know, just. Yeah. And, and the people that play a lot realize that the dealers want you to win. Yeah. Because when you're winning, you're tipping them more. Right. You're playing for them right. and, and different things. So anybody that knows the game realizes that you're not hoping to get a 21. Right. You know, or a, exactly. You just, but I can't control the cards. Nope. And, you know, it's just, it's more of a fun game. It was. It it wasn't terrible. It was more relaxed than craps. You know, it was a little more relaxed than all you do. But it was it was monotonous and boring. You're just dealing yeah. cards, dealing cards all day, eight hours. And sometimes you get a person that's nice and you talk to, but overall, no, I didn't like it. I tell you one thing. Um, I was probably the best 22 player there was. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Yeah, there was. Uh, I got 22 a lot. If you knew basic strategy, you could hang in there and play for for quite a while, actually. Yeah, the story I used to tell people was, of course, we didn't have any money back then when I lived there. I was making like 1500 bucks a month managing a quick lube store. But one night I, I asked my wife, I said, hey, can I, I got 50 bucks here. I'd like to go gamble. And, and uh, she's like, yeah, go ahead. I lasted on that $50 all night. I was still, I went, I went out the next day, the sun was up and I played that same 50 bucks. I think I ended up winning $20. But like you say, if you're just kind of there to play, you, you can last if you want to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you know base strategy, just like you said, just like what you did, you could do that. But I'd say over 80% of the players don't know how to play. And they're just there for fun. Yeah. Drink, fun, interact with the dealers. Yeah. That's how 21 is, I'd say. Uh, craps, uh, I've dealt in private games with high rollers where I've seen, uh, on one hand, 85,000 in action just from, they'd have a private room. I was just going to say that's off the main floor then, right? Yes. They'd set up a private room yeah. where usually the Baccarat tables were because those were usually for private people too. And it would just probably be maybe one guy, sometimes two. And uh, they would play, you know, three, four hours, take a break, and then come back and play. But, you know, they'd be there for maybe uh, three or four days. So, But when they played, like I said, you know, sometimes they'd have 80,000 in action, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was this one guy, he would always show up. I don't know who his name His first name was Dennis, but I don't know what he did. But um, I have dealt to... Uh, uh, Bruce Willis, he was a big uh, prop better. Uh, the props are when you go to craft games. I don't know, it's hard to explain. The things in the middle, mm-hmm. like the hard ways, hard six, that kind of thing. Uh, Twelve, they're usually those are one row bets. Some of those bets, but Bruce Willis was big on that, and he was a hyper guy, very hyper. Uh, and I dealt to Dennis Rodman and his crew. He'd come in with his crew. Yeah. And when he'd come in, there'd be people behind his crew just watching him because everybody kind of knew Dennis Robin at that time. 
And actually, he was a nice guy. He was quiet. Uh, he was an okay player. You'd bet uh, in the hundreds, hundred dollar, hundred and up bets. But he he was uh, he was okay. And MC Hammer, I dealt to him and his crew. He was a big player. Uh, he bet five five thousand dollars each bet, anywhere from uh, thirty thousand to forty thousand. And obviously, you know what happened to him in the end. He went broke. <laughs> Because maybe because of his posse or his crew, I don't know. But anyway, um, and I saw Robin Williams. He played. Yeah. Uh, I dealt to him. Uh, I'm trying to think some other movies. Oh, John Elway dealt to him. Uh, and I was a big. I'm a big Bronco fan. And Pitt Manners at that time, he goes, "If you see stars, don't ask them for autographs." Right. He was very didn't want to. And Elway's like my childhood idol. I had a piece of paper. I, I didn't care. <laughs> I went up to him. I go, John, will you sign this? And he was more than happy to. Yeah. So I had him. He was there. He was with uh, Shanahan, who was the coach of the Broncos back then. And uh, who else did I deal to? Uh, John Smoltz, baseball pitcher for the Braves. He was a big player. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the time Smoltz pitched for the Braves, who was the slow guy? Greg Maddox. Yeah. Maddox went to Valley High School right yeah, there in Vegas. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. I wondered if when you said Smoltz, I wondered if maybe he was out there hanging with Maddox, you know? I don't know. Well, they were Schmoltz was a big golfer and so was Maddox, so mm-hmm. they could have been, you know, golfing together and then yeah. he went to go play or something. I don't know. Anyway. But he was there and I dealt, I saw one day I saw Michael Jackson in the hallway going to the mess hall. Mm-hmm. He had his bodyguard. It you know. I was passing back, right? We were just passing each other. He said hi, and I said hi, you know. Just yeah. what else is he going to say? You know, that's about it. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, it, having lived in Las Vegas and, and, and just done a few things, um, depending on what you're doing, if you're out there doing anything in the public, you're going to run into some of these people. And, uh, you know, I was talking to you before that I used to work those fights. And same thing. I mean, some of the people were very gracious and very nice. We were told the same thing. Don't ask for autographs. Don't reach out and try and touch them or shake their hands. But sometimes they would shake your hand. You know, yeah. like one time my boss said, hey, Larry, take Mr. Murphy to his seat. And it was Eddie Murphy. And he's like, hey, man, how's it going? And he shook my hand. So that's different. Yes. But uh, but I'm with you. I, I remember working with, and I've told this story before, where I, he, he, my boss said, stay with Charles Barkley tonight and, and keep people away from him. So for an hour and a half, I sat next to Charles Barkley. And every person that walked up, though, he was like, hey, Larry, it's okay. And he would sign something or he would stand up and take a picture with him. Every single person. And uh, at the end of the fight, when it was over, he goes, hey, do you think you can walk me through the casino and get me out front? And we weren't supposed to do that. But I was like, sure. That's kind of like you in that autograph. I didn't care. What are they going to do? Fire me. Right. So, so I walked him all the way through and, and uh, it was a great experience. And he, yeah. ended up, he ended up giving me his, a number to a guy to call and get some free tickets. And so that's a very good experience. Yes. Then I've had the ones like you were saying, you know, not so good, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there was a couple times I almost got fired in the business <laughs> just from one woman's the circus circus from hustling too much, our crew mm-hmm. and, a, a elderly lady turned us in and the pit manager reamed us out and this and that. He goes, be careful. The next time you guys are gone, you know, so, I've had some experiences and and breaking in. I 
sometimes I took the game home with me. I took it personally when someone would yell at you or take a shot at you, meaning saying I didn't pay him right or underpaid him or I had this bet, you didn't pay me, this kind of thing, you know. And so, you ever you ever have to go to the eye in the sky? Uh, mostly the eye in the sky, they were worthless. Oh, okay. They were only good for, like, if there was uh, something important, like a high roller, like I was telling you, the private games and stuff. Uh, if there was a, if the player said he got didn't get paid or he missed a payoff, then they'd go eye in the sky and run the tape back and say, well, he underpaid him or he didn't pay him, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's about all they were good for. Other than that, I didn't, most of the time I didn't think they did their job. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I, I worked a short time, as I mentioned to you earlier, at Caesars Palace, and I remember one time <clears throat> uh, I was in the blackjack pit and a guy just went crazy and said, hey, hey, I had a, you know, I had doubled down on that or whatever. And uh, no, no, no. So we actually paused the game and sat there while, you know, they checked the eye in the sky. And the guy was right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple times when I dealt blackjack, I made a mistake. And they called the eye in the sky. Okay, I messed up. Give them $10. But as a good example to show how bad the eye in the sky was, I worked one time. I was, I was working a crap game. And there was a box man, which is the guy that sits in the middle between the dealers. He was putting $100 bills in his mouth occasionally. When someone would buy in for $100, you know, buy in cash, $100 buy in, he was rolling them up, put them in his hand, and then put them in his mouth. And to get back to that story with the eye in the sky, a player on the game noticed it and went to the the floor man says, should that guy be putting $100 bills in his mouth? So then they ran back the tapes from whenever whenever they want. They keep them. And he was doing that. On a regular basis. On a regular basis because he had a drug problem. Mm. So they fired him. So there's an example where this guy's not doing his job. There would be times when uh, uh, they would call chip snatchers. Just regular guys walking around on Let's say it's a big game, loud game. They'd come and steal the chips out of the racks. Yep. I and this guy didn't do nothing there. There'd be crews, crap crews, all together, working together. They'd bring in an outsider, overpay the guy. And at the end of the night, they'd meet up and split it up. So, like I said, I and this guy, I don't think, I don't think they were, in my opinion, were worthless. Yeah. Pretty much. Yes. I mean, they were there for a $5 bet, but we're already on these kind of like scams, you know? Exactly. And it took them a while to catch these guys. Eventually, they, everybody gets caught. So, I don't know. But yeah. I remember guys running in and sometimes just grabbing <laughs> chips and running oh, right yeah. back out, you know? But, that was a big thing, chip stealers. Yep. Yep. And the, the longest hand I was on in a crap game was 50 minutes, where the dice just kept, without calling a seven out. So the guys, the dice just kept passing and passing. Rolling winners and winners with no seven. I was on the game for 50 minutes. Wow. And there was eight players on each side. And it was loud, noisy. I mean, it was crazy. It was hectic. It was fun, though. Yeah. It was fun. And in the end, they didn't lose that much because there was no high rollers on the game. It was just, you know, normal players. But I do remember that. So the did you end your career then at the Mirage? Yeah. I, uh, 
Let's see. I started in eight. I was there 23 years. So I was in the business for 30 years total. And I retired at 55. And, uh, and in between that time, I met my wife in, uh, where did I meet her? 94. I met her in 94 and we've been married for 26 years. Right on. And, uh, and she's from Vegas, right? Yeah, she's a native of Vegas. Yeah, she yeah. worked in the jewelry business at Tower of Jewels, which was kind of a big uh, big place back in the day. And so I retired at 55, and uh, I just got burned out. I got tired. But I forgot to mention, in between these times I was dealing, I was uh, selling on eBay. Since 99, I've been selling on eBay. Okay. I did that part-time. And uh, then I got in the Amazon when it started catching fire. I've been selling on Amazon 10-plus years, and I still sell on eBay and Amazon now. I just enjoy that. It's a hobby of mine. Back when I was dealing, I was just doing it part-time. I actually wanted to do it full-time, but I just I don't think I could have made it full-time. Were you sell, are you selling mostly like memorabilia? Or? Well, I was in the, that's where my childhood comes back into play. I was in the trading cards and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was selling trading cards and sports figurines and stuff like that. It was, it, back then it was a big business. Sure. It's dead now, pretty much. So it was fun back then. In fact, once a month I'd go to uh, Arizona and do card shows. I, yeah. had a, I had a van and I did card shows there. Because I was off on the weekends, so I could take like a Friday off, put in for like a personal day, they call it. So I do that. Were you doing mostly baseball? Uh, Cards, I mean? Baseball, football, you know, pretty much all. So like Upper Deck, Tops, Fleer, Don Russ, all those guys. When they came in, and then I did uh, uh, action figures, I call starting lineup figures. Yep, I remember. I got into those, and I was actually got away from the cards and went mostly into the figurines. Yeah, I did pretty good. I, a show I'd make from eight to eight hundred to a thousand dollars. You know, I had to put in my time too, traveling and expenses. But it's funny. That's where the, when I told you about the my brother being a bully with the ants. It made full circle. I used to stay at KOAs with my van. Mm-hmm. I'd make a little spot. I put all my stuff in vans. And I'd make a little spot where I could sleep. And one time. Uh, I bought some food and I left it in the van. I woke up the next morning; there was ants all over me. So that's where I got my I got my ants either way. Even was it from my brother? And then after that, I stayed in hotels. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I did that and I enjoyed that. And I think I got that from my dad because he used to do flea markets on the weekends because he was a collector. He collect, believe it or not, his big thing was collecting typewriters. Okay. When he passed away, he had a shed on the side of the house, and there it was full to the top of typewriters. My brother ended up throwing them away. I mean, I don't think they're worth anything. They may be or not, but they were, you know, typewriters. I don't know if everybody remembers typewriters. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but so that's where I got to collect it from, my dad. When you went to the card shows, um, was that still back when you were getting players that would show up and autograph and do things like that? Yes. Yeah, there was some a place called uh, – there was a TriStar – it's get players to autograph. That was a big show. 
Yeah, those are kind of big draws. I remember meeting yes. Pete Rose, and yes. there was always somebody at these shows that was signing. You know, because it was a way for those guys. I mean, you know, the thing that's interesting when we grew up, players in the '60s, even into the '70s, they didn't make that much money, not no. compared to like now. Right. So a lot of those guys would retire, and okay, they did okay while they were playing. But now what? Now mm-hmm. they're forty years old and they're out yep. of baseball. So for them to be able to go around these shows and pick up a couple grand or something was. Yep enticing to them so they'd, right. they'd travel the circuit and just go to these card shows yeah. trade shows yeah i remember seeing all those guys they were some of the bigger shows like you said rice montana they were always there mm-hmm. so i did that for i don't know how long did i do that over five plus years and then of course ebay killed that market so then i just started selling ebay part-time and then the card business got dead and the action figures so then i started going into uh, the die cast, which is a NASCAR die cast and mm-hmm. just regular cars die cast. Uh, and uh, sometimes I just sell what I thought would sell, you know, just it didn't have to be sports related or die cast related. And uh, but to this day, I'm still doing that, so I enjoy that. So, would you say today is um, obviously there's a little bit of income that comes from that, but is it hobby too, kind of? Yeah, it's mostly a hobby. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, I don't need the money, but I enjoy it. Yeah. It's just something I love to do. It's like me doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I just enjoy it. And, you know, whatever little money I make, that's fine. But uh, it's just something that's something I just love to do. And then, so anyway, I did that in between when I was dealing to the shows and eBay and then Amazon. So I retired in 50, when I was 55. And uh, and getting back into the softball thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you how what, what how did that happen? What brought that on? Because I got to say, and, and this is not just <laughs> take it for what it's worth. I've been playing softball for, I mean, you know, forty years, and I've played with a lot of good players, some really good players. Uh, you know, your major players, your major plus players, and your swing as a left-handed hitter is as good as anybody I've played with. So you could play from a hitting standpoint. You know, they rate you on different things. But let's face it, a lot of the guys that can hit, that's about all they can do. Yeah. They can't run. No. They can't catch. They can't field. They can't throw. But they can hit. But, you know, you're a great hitter. And I, <laughs> I listened to what you talked about in high school. And you talked about, you know, relief pitching and pinch running. But you didn't really talk about hitting. And I thought that was interesting because I know you as a hitter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, in high school, I, they wouldn't let me hit. I couldn't hit. Yeah. I was a terrible hitter. Yeah. In high school. So, so I, I just relief pitcher and pinch runner. Yeah. And But, man, you hit for power. You, you're you a line drive hitter. And, you know, I know even at third base when you're up to bat, I got to be watching. <laughs> I know you'll try and slap one down right down the line on me. And they don't come easy. Yeah. <laughs> you hit them hard. Thanks. I appreciate that. I, I take a lot of pride in my softball. I, I put the – again, I put the time in on that. You know, I work out and I have one of those little – training aids where I do the swings and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I put my time in that and I uh, appreciate that compliment. And Yeah. But, well, so uh, did you get back in in Vegas then while you were living there? Well, I was, there's, there's another story with uh, the softball. Uh, my 50th birthday, uh, we had a family picnic and we go, let's play softball. So, okay. So we just got the family together, played some softball and, clicked in my head again 
you know, I, I like it. I need to play. Mm-hmm. And then getting again, I guess, I, I don't know, I guess my life lives off want, uh, want ads. I was reading the paper and there was an ad in the paper. Uh, so I don't remember the exact words, but they were looking for senior softball players. 50 plus, call this person. So I called him. Said, come on out. Came out. Just, you know, they had batting practice. You know, a little uncomfortable, obviously. Didn't know anybody and stuff. Just getting back into it. But I liked it. I said, all right. So I just started showing up every week. And when I was 50, sometimes it would be on a work day. And I'd play ball in the morning, change in my car, and go to work. That's just how much I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, uh, so I started playing when I was 50, and then um, uh, I play for a tournament team now, which means they play uh, senior softball tournaments in different cities. It could be Reno, Denver, Vegas, St. George even. So... I, I guess my life lives off one ads. I saw an ad on the senior softball side, a team looking for players. Called the guy and said, all right, we're going to Reno. I go, all right, I'll be there. And we clicked. I've been with them for 13 years. Yeah. And so, and then I played with, when I lived in Vegas, I played with that league for, uh, let's see. 12 years no 11 years about 11 years and uh vegas was getting too hectic and too busy too crowded and the wife of me wanted to go to a smaller place so we moved out to mesquite we'll be there it'll be two years that we'll be there in august and uh she just retired about three months ago and uh then I was the commissioner for the Mesquite Softball League for a year. And then found the St. George League. Uh, did my research. I wasn't even I wasn't gonna move to Mesquite unless there was a softball league. Otherwise I wasn't going. But obviously there was, so I moved there and then I found the St. George League and started playing there. And uh, I just love the game. I love it. Yeah. I live for it. I really enjoy it. And I could say that about a lot of uh, the guys I play with, they love playing. And like you were saying, some can't run, some can't hit, but they're out there trying, and they love it. I've, I play at Mesquite. I play with guys 85-plus. Mm-hmm. God bless them being out there playing at that age. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people think, oh, isn't that nice? They don't understand, though, that it's it's pretty damn competitive, especially when you get into the tournaments. Yes. Now, the leagues, you know, St. George and stuff, you know, we're out there having a good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. If I make a mistake, I, mean, I don't lose any sleep over it. Or if we lose a game, I don't even know. Sometimes Judy will say, who won? I go, yeah, I think we did. I don't even know. Because I just don't care. Tournaments, that's different. Yes. And that's where, like, you know, somebody will say, do you slide anymore? I go, only in tournaments <laughs> right. if it's the championship game or something. That's <laughs> or about die, it. die for a ball. <laughs> yeah, only exactly. in tournaments. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so basically that's. That's it. Now I just play a lot of softball or try to. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I sent a questionnaire to you and, and I, I, here it is right here. I thought this is pretty funny where I said, so what do you, what do you see for your future? Uh, <laughs> let's see. You said right here. Um, 
okay, we're going to talk about Hawaii in a minute. But I said, what, what, what are your future plans? And you said, stay healthy, enjoy life, and hope to be able to play softball a lot more years, God willing. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that's what I was just going to say. Luckily, God willing, so far I have been healthy. And, yeah. You know, I haven't had major surgery. You know, you see these guys out there, shoulders, hips, knees. God, oh, yeah. God willing, I haven't had gone through that yet, so. That's, you know, th- there is a lot of luck to that too. You know, to to stay healthy, yes, so that you can keep playing. Because, like oh. you say, I mean, I can think of a lot of guys that aren't playing anymore just because it got just too many injuries. You know, so yeah. And you know, I I always been a gym rat. Even when I wasn't playing softball, I when I worked at the Mirage all those years, I'd go to the gym every other day. Yeah. So I put my time in there. So that probably helped a little bit. You know, as far as the injury get preventing injuries which but uh well right on well so as far as uh I, I think i told you that i have a lot of hawaii stuff to to my podcast part of, part of it's just because I, I love hawaii mm-hmm. always have since a little kid but also because i've lived there went to school there um so i always ask people and i already know that you went to maui but your trip to maui was <clears throat> quite a while ago wasn't it i don't even remember it was so long ago yeah yeah so and that, um, that was with another girl too yeah well, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, and she's never been to Hawaii. You know, wants to, wants to go, she said, but she's never been. So, I realized that it's like a lot of things in life. You and I have a real interest in softball. You know, ninety eight percent of people listening to this podcast have no interest at all right. in softball, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, different different uh, strokes for different folks, so to speak. And and Hawaii is just my passion or one of my passions. And um, so I'll I'll pick out a song though that I think will be. Uh, one that you'll enjoy and I'll stick it in here in the middle somewhere. I always just kind of insert a song in there in the middle, but, uh, but I appreciate you being here today and taking yeah. some time. I mean, uh, I, I know we've, we've got softball here in about two hours. That's so. right. I'm ready to go too. <laughs> should be a halfway decent day, but yeah, I appreciate you asking me to do this and you know, uh, hope someone likes it out there and learn something a little bit, but uh, I enjoy talking about myself and, well, I'm telling your story. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of similarities. And that's the thing that when I run into people, they'll say, hey, I listen to this podcast or I listen to a couple of these podcasts. And they're like, man, really, a, a lot of us have a lot of things in common, you know, yeah. if you're in the same age bracket, that is. Right. You know, since we're in, you know, our early 60s or whatever, we're going to have things in common with anybody 55 to 70 or whatever. But but uh, but yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of similarities, a lot of the things you experienced growing up. In Denver, I experienced growing up in Southern California, almost right. to a T. I mean. Yeah, and like I said, you know, it's, I haven't had any major tragedy. My dad died when he was ninety-one, which is a good age. Oh, yeah. My mom's still alive; she's ninety-five. Wow! And my brother and sister are healthy, and so been lucky as far as that goes. Yeah, you know? I'd say you got some good genes. You're going to be around a while. Yeah, I hope so. Play <laughs> <laughs> <I> softball. <laughs> All right, Bruce. Well, hey, listen, man, I appreciate it again. And um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in once again to Nobody Knows Your Story. And we'll be back next week with another interesting tale from somebody just like you.
travel down the road you will find this place is yours and mine traveling down the road you will see this place is here for you and me